go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to another episode of EAA's The Green Dot, our podcast for anyone who's interested in aviation, who has a love of aviation, history, space, you name it. I'm Hal Bryan. I'm Senior Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications at EAA. On my left... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EA Aviation Programs Coordinator. And a special guest host across the table... Sarah Nissler, Digital Managing Editor. Yay! <laughs> not Compl- Tom Charpentier. Not Tom Charpentier. Not even a, not even a good simulation of Tom Charpentier. So, and joining us today, very special guest uh, who has just flown in from Washington D.C. just to do this podcast. Everybody, just smile and nod. <laughs> Assume that's the case. Uh, it's a it's a real pleasure, both professionally and personally, to welcome uh, somebody that's uh, been a friend of mine for many many years. Coming to us from the amazing, the wonderful, the iconic uh, National Air and Space Museum, the Smithsonian Institution, uh, museum curator Jennifer Lavasser. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to have you here. I should I should have introduced you as Doctor. Dr. Lavasser, PhD. You've earned that. Well, yes. And I've (laughs) got to say it once, and then, you (laughs) know, then I'll be casual again. She took my appendix out on the way down. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody had to. (laughs) (laughs) Crying out loud. As much as you complain about that thing. So, so Jennifer, you're a museum curator. and uh, your focus is on space uh, space artifacts. What what specifically at the Smithsonian? Uh, well, I started out uh, well over 10 years ago now working on cameras. I had done an internship at the National Portrait Gallery and became really interested in cameras and photography. And so when I moved to Air and Space, they said, well, what's something that you might want to curate? What's something you're really interested in studying? I said, how about cameras? So I kind of got shifted uh, from some other curators about 500 cameras, which is, you know, I, it sounds exciting. You think, oh, there's going to be this amazing camera that took that picture that everybody knows. Well, not really. It's a bunch of pieces and parts and um, little doodads and things. So at first it sounded really exciting, and it kind of, eh, you know, it becomes a little bit complicated after a while. So they gave me more to do, and that's when it got really fun. <laughs> so they gave you more to do. <laughs> yeah. So this is Just hard my, and complicated. Yeah. Okay, here's more. Here's more. <laughs> that's how that goes. really how it Welcome works. To government so, work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so about uh, eight years ago, I became curator for astronaut personal equipment, which is the really fun stuff. That's the stuff that really. Um, I mean, I think everybody knows what a camera is, and that's easy to talk about. But what's really fun is talking about how astronauts do their just daily business in space and how that may or may not be different from how you might do something here. Um, From everything from writing on a piece of paper to going to the bathroom to um, communicating with others. And so it it just, it gives a a really great access point to talking to young people in particular about what astronauts do and how it's different from what they do. Now, no spoilers, but I suspect we're going to revisit that bathroom question before this episode (laughs) is over. Uh, So (laughs) be warned out there. Um, very quickly about the camera thing, and this is just uh, just inside uh, inside stuff. But uh, um, at some point, have you ever come across a Graflex flash tube? I don't believe I have. Really? Do you know why, why I'm that? asking? No, I don't. Okay, so that no. was uh, the original. We're going way off uh, in the dirt here, but uh, <laughs> Luke Skywalker's original lightsaber was a Graflex flash tube from the early 40s or so. So, I call myself a Star Wars fan. Well, when you when you see old movies of the reporters coming up, kind of early 40s and all of the, the yes. flash tubes with the, uh, yeah, tr- no, the uh, circle yeah. on top, yeah. the actual base of that, if you just pull that right off, you have his exact prop right there. Wow. So, uh, so that's my that's what I know about cameras in history is only how it relates to Star Wars, and um, 
Sarah, here's my lunch money. Just take it now. <laughs> It'll be a lot easier than you having to beat me up for it afterward. So anyway. Well, so do you remember having a path that you wanted to go in your career? You know, is there, is there something that early on got <laughs> and you And if so, what's this? that like? Because yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> <Me either. laughs> I've just kind of fumbled my way through it all. Um, well, in, in some ways, I always think it's just sort of a um, series of happenings that this is just kind of, you know, chance encounters with people. It's, oh, hey, there's this job opening I heard about. Or, um, uh, you know, I don't think when I sat down and, you know, did the whole survey as a kid in elementary school, what do you want to be when you grow up, I would have ever answered, I want to be a museum curator. I don't think it's something anybody kind of consciously chooses as a career. Um, But it seemed by the time I got to the National Air and Space Museum, it was the obvious thing for me to be doing. Um, I loved history. I grew up going to museums. Um, I grew up in southeast Michigan, so I was always going to the Toledo Museum of Art. I was going to the Henry Ford Museum and Greenfield Village. And so these were things that were really sort of ingrained in who I was. Um, and I was also obviously a big science fiction fan as a kid. Um, unusual for a girl, but it just it was just my thing. My older brother was a big Star Wars fan, so it kind of got me into it. Um, and I had a passing interest in space. Um, just thought space was cool and astronauts were cool. And when you grow up in southeast Michigan and you watch television every day in the 1980s, you see John Glenn on TV because he's the senator from Ohio. So it just kind of, you know, by the time I actually got my initial job, which is was as a sort of GS7 entry-level technician job at the, at the museum, I thought, you know, I think I might want to stick around here. Um, and, and it just kind of, I kept, I asked somebody one day, literally within the first six months, how do I stay? Like, what do I have to do to keep this going? Um, and they said, make yourself indispensable. And I think I've tried to do that pretty much every day since then. It's nobody can tolerate to get rid of me because uh, <laughs> I control too many things. Um, That's no, sound I, advice. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, and eventually, you know, somebody got me to think seriously about it and said, well, if you really want to be a curator, this is what you've got to do. You've got to go back and work on your Ph.D. You've got to finish that. You've got to start publishing um, all the things that are, you know, required by, you know, uh, certain rules that I actually do for this job. So um, I'm going to keep that up, I think, for a while. (laughs) And I mean, other than uh, than emergency surgery, like you performed on Chris on the way down here, (laughs) what what is your actual doctorate in? Uh, it's in is history. It so in history yeah, I'm, all my degrees are in history or American studies is what I would prefer to kind of reference it as, which is really uh, sort of more cultural history. Okay. So that's sort of where I've always tried to go with this: is what what is it about um, space that's made it inherently fascinating to our culture? What is it about, especially my dissertation topic, which was on astronaut photography? What is it makes those images so important to us? Um, what about them has really appealed to people and made them these real touchstones for people who weren't even, sometimes like myself, were not around for the Apollo program? Why is it so important even to me as somebody born in the late 70s to look at those things and go, wow, you know, and make them important? So it's kind of what my, sort of what my research focuses on, and it kind of keeps, keeps the ball rolling at work, too. Um, I obviously deal with the cameras, but there's lots of other things that go on that kind of are, I'm able to wrap all of that stuff into and... So it's kind of what my sort of research and uh, educational background kind of it all kind of ties in in this one spot. Great. Is, is there someone throughout all of that that has helped you or guided you that has stood out? 
Yeah, I mean, I have... Um, don't say me. I'll just no, be embarrassed. I'm sorry. I, mean, you know, I know we go back about 10 years. But. <laughs> That's true. Um, but going back to about 15 years, yeah, when I first started at the museum, um, I had moved from Michigan to D.C., which is a total culture shock. And so I think I needed to have some people who I really felt comfortable around. And, and many of my colleagues, thankfully, were that. I moved to where I had no family as well. So in the beginning, especially, I was looking for people who were more... Um, I don't want to say family father figures almost, but I was really, I really kind of latched on to people who wanted to take me under their wing too, who thought I had some promise. I was, you know, very impressionable, but also very interested and enthusiastic. So um, there are some other curators in the museum who are passionate about their collection. And that's really where I got started in being interested in the curatorial side was seeing other colleagues of mine who really cared about what we do out on the floor in the exhibitions and what we do with our collections. Um, those to me were the two most important things that we do in the museum. The research is great. It's interesting. I find out lots of new things. But um, there's one curator who, and he and I have absolutely nothing in common as far as our collections go. He's our history of astronomy curator, David Dvorkin. He wanted to open a public observatory um, just to get more people in front of a telescope. And I thought, that is so cool. He worked for 10 years to get that done, and it finally oh, happened. Wow. And it was just this huge achievement. But from the day, I've always said, from the day I entered the department, I was hearing about this observatory project. And he finally fulfilled that. And I said, hey, that's something I really admire. So he and I have become, like, buddies. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned the 10-year thing. Um, you and I have a mutual friend, one of your coworkers, uh, yeah. uh, Vicki Portway. I've known um, longer than I, than I have you, in fact. And I remember working with her on a project back when I was still at Microsoft, and there was something that was taking you know a couple of weeks longer, something than normal. And I remember just apologizing profusely that this is this is kind of dragging. And she just laughed and she said, "Look, we're a government institution. We've been around at that time what 160 years or something." Nothing happens fast. That's true. So there's no, there is no rush. <laughs> yeah, there's not. And that observatory project was one of those that just, you know, it was, it, it made an impression on me as somebody who, want, you know, it takes a long time sometimes to get things done. And every project we look at, it, whether it be an exhibition or collecting a certain artifact, it can take forever. Mm -hmm. But there is this huge fulfillment on the other end. Chris and I on the way here were talking about flak bait, and I'm not an aviation curator, but I have to say watching flak bait get reassembled with Beast 26, that's right. just probably one of the most amazing examples of a historic aircraft I can think of. Um, just to watch that process is really kind of cool to be a part of, and just off to the side even watching it through the windows. <laughs> well, and, you know, we work here, and we, we have a museum. Of course, Chris works uh, works for that museum. Um Chris and I, in, sort of independently in our lives, have both traveled pretty extensively. We've seen a lot of museums around and everything else. And, uh, you know, we, we love the one that we have here. We're quite proud of it, and I think very justifiably so. But, you know, we, we, we nod our heads and say, you know, you, you are America's museum. <laughs> the, whole, the whole institution with, you know, natural history and American history and, mm -hmm. and uh, Aaron Space and Varhazi and all of that. Uh, so that's got to be a pretty, a pretty powerful thing coming to work because, you know, I get humbled just walking through our museum and the artifacts we're proud of. But for you to just get up every day and go to work just as being responsible for, uh, I mean, it's, it's, our, it's our whole country's attic. For want of yeah. a better term. You're scaring me now. <laughs> so, so you're excited to go back now and get to work. Yeah. I do think about that quite a bit, actually. And that's something that we talk about inside the museum all the time, which is our responsibility 
that is um, not uh, not what you just see when a visitor comes in. I mean, we know people get to come to the Smithsonian maybe once in their life. Right. Um, and we need to treat that as a special experience for every single one of them. And that's a lot of pressure, but it's also a huge honor to be able to do that for people to provide this really amazing experience. And so we want to make that special for everybody. Um, and that's a real challenge, but also in the terms of the collecting that we do, we have to think about the long term. And we're not talking about the long term 10 to 15 to 20 years. We're talking about the next 100 to 500 years. I mean, when we think about our long term, that's what we think. And so we have to rationalize everything we do. We have to justify it. We have to justify it to each other, which is the really hard part. When you want to collect something at the Air and Space Museum, you can't just go and pick it up from you know the guy who has it that thinks it's really cool. You have to write up a proposal, and then you have to pitch that proposal to your most immediate colleagues in your department. And then that has to go through the approval of the entire museum. And then the director has to sign off on it. It's no small feat to get something in the collection of uh, the nation's Air and Space Museum. So it's, it's a challenge, but it's a, you know, I think that's what makes it one of the best jobs I can think of is to have to meet that challenge and to really um, do the right thing on behalf of the country, which it sounds maybe a little inflated in some ways. I feel like, I gosh, I feel so like that sounds so crazy, but um, in reality, you know, we have a certain responsibility that, um, no other museum, and, and maybe there are, there are other national museums, the National Museum of the Air Force and the Marine Corps and all those, sure. and they have their own specialized collections in terms of those services, but we have such a broad scope and a broad appeal and a um, broad base of our visitorship. We just, it makes it really intimidating sometimes, but also there's a huge payoff to that. Well, and with you know nine million visitors a year, at least that was the last number that uh, that I always heard. That just that's absolutely mind blowing, and you know we we kid a little bit about uh, about things taking time and 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 that sort of thing, but to me there's something sort of reassuring knowing. I mean, you just said you know you're thinking you know hundreds of years ahead. Um, that's very comforting to me because because you've got the things that we. And I, I'm thinking of the institution as a whole. You've got the things that we absolutely have to preserve. Yeah. I will never forget walking into, uh, forgive the uh, tangent, but going into the American History Museum and seeing the Star-Spangled Banner. Not just an old flag, but the actual thing. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely mind-blowing. The real thing is what we often talk about. We know right. people come to the Smithsonian to see the real thing. Um, and that makes it really particularly challenging when so much digital uh, media is, you know, and, and digital devices and smartphones and tablets and are, and are so popular is how do we balance out the outreach that we do to communities who can't come into the museum with the work that we know we need to do for the community of people who come, the nine million or so that come every year right. into the building to see the real thing. But how can, you know, how do we not only balance out our work to engage both those communities, but also, um, you know, not shortchange the collection and things like, you know, it's, it's a really tricky balance, but, um, you know, hopefully we're up to the challenge. And we've been doing it for um, just over 40 years now at the museum, so wow. I think we'll keep going. That's <laughs> what <laughs> so I'll say. What, you know, if you brought a copy of your 500-year plan, I'm sure we'd, uh, we'd love to, to have a look yeah, at it. Yeah. Um, and I hate to keep monopolizing the conversation with the other co-hosts, but just sort of get us back to what we were originally thinking. Um, if you would, Jennifer, just step us through kind of a typical day, if there is such a thing. Oh. And if, if there's not, that's okay, too. Just, uh, just pick a random one. Yeah, well, there's two. In my world, at least I've designed it away, there's two typical days. Um, there's a typical day where I go downtown to the National Mall building. 
Uh, I commute into the city every day from out in Manassas, Virginia, which has its own sort of history, which is kind of cool. But uh, I get downtown and um, you know, when I walk into work, and this has been true for a while, is that I walk around this one particular corner and I'm able to see the Capitol building as I walk up Maryland Avenue to 6th cool. uh, Street, which is the sort of the way I approach the building. And um, it's always kind of it's, it's always just been really special to have that. And I don't think there's been a day, you know, maybe if I'm like really not feeling good or something like that, where I haven't just gone, wow, I am walking in the nation's capital and seeing this amazing building. And then we've got the Smithsonian, you know, right in front of me. And, um, I've always joked that I have, I must have a sort of um, uh, some, some some sort of special symbol that floats over my head that some people, lost people, can see because I always get asked <laughs> for directions right at that corner. Um, but it's just, it's it, it's kind of cool to you know, like be seen as somebody, I guess, who knows where they're going. So, and I do know where I'm going. I'm going to work, and I'm, you know, I spend, uh, you know, an, an incredible amount of time, like many people, on my computer answering emails because we do answer lots of inquiries from the public. So. Um, but most of the days I'm meeting with colleagues on, um, exhibitions. We're working on quite a few number, uh, quite a few new exhibitions. And so we will go through, um, meetings. We're going through design reviews and artifact selection for those exhibitions, um, graphic reviews, the kind of, you know, boring stuff that people would just be like, that's what you have to do to make an exhibition happen. Yes, it is. Um, uh, and um, usually working on some kind of collections issue because I have um, a very personally focused collection, something that has to do with the actual people who flew in space. It tends to be very active in the sense of people want to know about it. So um, there are certain parts of my collection that I get more questions about or have more issues with that I deal with on a regular basis, um, which makes it fun and exciting. And I, 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 I joke that I have a, a part of my collection that's only 60 artifacts, and I probably spend 50% of my time on those 60 artifacts because there's just so much activity around them. So, oh. and which collection would that be? Uh, that's, that's the like... astronaut chronograph collection. Um, oh, anybody who's cool. a watch collector or knows anything about astronauts uh, knows that their chronographs were really important to them, and so just tends to be very active. It's um, you know, it's it, it's a really uh, there's lots of watch collectors out there who hmm. like to talk uh, like to talk watches a lot. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, but you know, there's my other typical day, which is the days I go out to the Udvar-Hazy Center, which is really fun. Um, the Edward Hasey Center, I've, is, I've kind of, I always say that it, it's kind of, I've, my career has kind of followed along with that building and opened in 2003, which is right after I started working at the museum. I go out there at least once a week. I drive out. I go to my office. I get to walk around this really amazing space and see these, you know, not like I don't see amazing artifacts at the downtown building, but the Edward Hasey Center, because it's kind of, like I said, it's, it's, if, its lifespan is sort of like my career's span at the museum. I have a certain attachment to it, and so just to kind of spend time there and seeing our restoration work and our conservation work, and um, we have our archives out there. It just—it's kind of a really interesting environment to immerse yourself in and just kind of kind of spend time in, and it—it it, it kind of takes me away from the hustle and bustle that is and craziness that is the Beltway around DC, and just um, gets me to get focused a little differently. So that's excellent. I remember my first trip there. When you walk in the door, you can kind of catch a peek of the shuttle, and you're just like, "Oh my yes. God, that's a space shuttle!" Yeah. <laughs> you know, up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was I there. still do it myself. I can't. I, what can I say? <laughs> I was lucky enough to be there on opening day. Uh, oh wow! For one one event or another, and that was amazing. Yeah. And 
I've been there for a lot of the big special days, which has been really awesome. I was there uh, the day that Discovery came in. Um, I was standing on the roof of our IMAX theater, uh, standing next to uh, Joe Allen, one of the uh, shuttle astronauts, early shuttle astronauts. Um, I think he was a backup or a prep crew for Apollo 15, too. Um, and uh, Bill Reedy, or, uh, you know, there's just these, like, people who come in and out of our place. It's like, this is crazy. It was also the day of my very first appearance on live television, which was really <laughs> weird. I'm like, I don't know how I managed to do this, but nobody else was standing around. And so it's like, all right, your turn. You're on television. Um, so, yeah, I've been there for a lot of the really big special events, and it's really, um, it's been uh, unreal, I'll say that much, to get to be there for that stuff. Well, that kind of leads us into uh, what we wanted to ask next, which is out of these memorable stories you have working with the spacecraft and these legends of space flight, do yeah. you have maybe one or two events or moments that really stand out for you? Yeah. Um, I'll tell, I'll, I can tell you too, one that's kind of just um, kind of weird and, uh, you know, just happened to, you know, kind of come out of nowhere and, uh, and one that's maybe a little bit more serious. Um, I, uh, I was walking around my department one day, and one of my colleagues um, needed some help with something. And I was doing some administrative work in the department at the time. And she says, can you tell me where I can find a FedEx tube for this? You know, i got to send something out. And I said, sure. And um, I didn't really happen to notice who was with her at the time, but she had me lead her into our workroom where our FedEx materials were. And I kind of happened to turn my head to the side and look, and it was Michael Collins that was oh following her. And I just, like, I realized I'm, like, I'm getting a, ma a mailing tube for something that he needs. And I just, like, I like it was one of those, like, I'm in, I kind of went into an alternate universe for a second there and couldn't believe what I was doing. And he then, orbited um, the moon, but I he know, needs my cardboard he needs tube. My, he needs the FedEx tube. I have to help. Um, and so I gave her the FedEx tube, and she walked out. And then he was such a gentleman, of course, let me go in front of him. And um, and it was our, our federal offices are notoriously bad for being cold in the summertime and even colder in the wintertime. <laughs> and this was the middle of summer, and here I am wearing this really heavy fleece. And uh, he's walking behind me, and here I'm thinking, you know, this guy was here the day the museum opened. He was here for the beginning of this place, and he's got to know that this is a problem. And he looks at me and he says, that fleece must be really useful around here. And I said, yes, it is. Um, and uh, actually, both of my stories are going to have to be funny. So um, <laughs> so one of the other privileges I've, got, I've, I've had over the years is getting to escort certain uh, you know, special guests that we've had at the museum. And one that I was really, really pleased to get to do, uh, because I have Midwestern roots especially, is um, – I got to escort the Glenn family a number of times when they came to the museum. We have an, an annual lecture in honor of John Glenn. We've had that since about, I think, about 2005. And um, so whenever they would come, I would meet them in the garage, um, walk them upstairs. And usually my default position was because he was usually the speaker and had to go up on stage or something, I would escort Mrs. Glenn. And uh, I remember escorting her out of our IMAX theater at one point, and I was um, I, I let her hold the railing on the way down the steps, and I was um, standing next to her holding her. She had her arm on my, on my arm, and um, she looked at me, and she said, I don't know how you go up and down these steps and heels all the time. And I said, that's all right. I usually wear my slippers around the office. And I thought to myself, I just told Mrs. Glenn I wear slippers in my office. Somebody who's sort of as proper as she is, right. who would never be caught without her heels on, at least even if they're just little, you know, little wedges or something. Here I'm telling her I wear slippers in my office. It was so weird and embarrassing. But um, – 
But, you know, I knew also that by telling her that story, she'd totally get it. She's from Ohio. She, you know, this is, yeah, we're not, we're not prim, proper New Yorkers or anything. <laughs> Are they big fuzzy Chewbacca slippers no, or anything I'm, interesting they, like no, that? No, they're actually, uh, <laughs> they're these, like, uh, knitted northern Maine slippers. It's so crazy. <laughs> All my little wacky things I have That's in my awesome. office. All right. Well, is there any advice you would want to give, like, young women getting into something that you're doing or into this type of industry? Yeah, I mean, because I have a connection with not only sort of space flight and, and, and I've been around lots of astronauts who come in and talk about how to be an astronaut. Um, I mean, I'm a historian. I'm somebody who grew up just kind of being a nerdy kid who went to museums and thought they were awesome and kind of feel like I happened into this job. But one of the things that's true about any of the career options that I think we have is um, to really develop a passion for something. Um, if, if you don't know what that is, you've got to find it. And I remember when I started at the museum and somebody said, you know, you really need to do a PhD. You're going to need to find a topic for your dissertation. I said, I don't really know what that means because I never planned on doing this. I never thought about it. It's nothing I ever, like, dreamt of as a kid. I'm going to be, a, you know, Dr. Lavaster someday. Never thought about that. Um, but I realized there were things I really cared about. There were things that I really wanted to do. And um, I had lots of friends from graduate school who had kind of just gone into other career fields because they didn't really care about being in a museum. Museums are, as I tell every intern who walks through our offices, museums are a passion job. You have to want to be there. Um, it's not something you do just because it's easy, because it's not. Um, it's not going to make you a million dollars. It's not going to, you know, you're not going to be famous and all that. You might get on television. One of my colleagues was on CNN during the eclipse. I, that was famous to me. <laughs> he was sitting next to Wolf Blitzer. I thought, this is fame right there. Um, so maybe someday you might be slightly famous. But, um, but that's not really what it's about. And so for young women in particular, um, I, you know, I – I had to learn early on not to be afraid to put my hand up and ask a question. Um, it sounds really simple, but I thankfully had a lot of really great female teachers growing up who encouraged that, who wanted to make sure that we had our voices heard. Um, and I'm not shy. I thought I used to be shy, but I'm absolutely not shy. I, if I have a question, I raise my hand. And I work in an office where there are a lot of really brilliant people, and I realized in the beginning, if I don't say something, if I don't raise my voice, it's th I, then I've just given up my right to be heard. I, I'm not. I'm not speaking up for myself and for my point of view. And it's very difficult when you've got lots of people who want to talk to get your voice heard. And mm -hmm. so I just I had to learn and kind of force myself to put myself out there all the time. And so it's it's really about not having any fear. Um, I tell my kids that all the time. Just just can't have any fear about this stuff because you know. You're going to go through life and just be quiet. It, I just, you know, it's about human connections and just meeting people and talking and getting to learn about other people's stories and things like that. And that's one of the things I love most about my job is getting to talk about my story. And um, it's, it's one of the most gratifying things. We have a really great um, intern program that we do with Smith College, and it's, that's a women's college. And we get, so we get these young women that come in every fall. And I always sit down and talk to them and say, you know, you need to know what it is you want to do. If you want to work in a museum, that's great. Keep working at it because it is hard. Um, but everything's going to be hard in life, and you have to be willing to work for it, and especially with a lot of our younger um, 
museum visitors who I won't say which generation they're from, but <laughs> they think things come a little bit easier. Um, you got to work hard for it. And I just have that really hardworking Midwestern work ethic that I developed from my dad. And I just, I, yeah, it's something I think we all have to kind of keep in mind going forward, especially about teaching. Like I teach my kids that all the time and nothing's coming for free. You got to just work for it. So um, it's, it, you know, I, I want to, I would like to think I would say something different to a young girl that I would from say to one of my boys, uh, my boys are seven and four. I pretty much tell them the same thing is that you yeah. got to work for it. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, there is that little bit different spin on it that you have to have as a, a tell, talking to young girls, which is, you know, it's a more about being a, more forceful about it. Mm-hmm. It can come off as a little different. And I think even in my own relationships, I've, you know, probably come off as a bit undiplomatic at times because I just can be very forceful, but, um, people know I have an opinion. That's the one important thing to me, I think. Yeah. Good stuff. Yep. That's exactly right. <laughs> Sarah, however, has never yeah, had an opinion. No, and, never. And, and, and I will no. say, I will say much of this, as Hal probably knows from, from anything I ever post on Facebook, a lot of this attitude I have comes from having become a huge Star Wars fan. And I am, <laughs> I am, yes. and I am and a huge admirer of not only Carrie Fisher, but Princess Leia as a character. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be learned from that. And one of the posts I saw recently about uh, something George Lucas said was that she actually had a PhD at 19. And I'm like, I knew it. I knew it. This is why I did all of this is because she was a PhD too. That's so. what I've been missing in my yep. life. Huh? <laughs> so Monday morning I'll be bringing in copies of Star Wars movies yes. for Sarah to watch yep. so she yeah. can start studying yeah, yeah see don't wait to be rescued that's the real key. <laughs> don't wait to Just be rescued yeah. uh, I, I believe i followed your yeah. antics of watching the fast and furious uh series didn't i so yep yeah this will be like star wars now. so yeah well we'll you, you post and keep us up to date how it goes but, uh, <laughs> but don't wait to be rescued i want i, I, like I want that. bumper stickers yeah. and t-shirts i know I say that. rescued. that's gonna be my so, next poster that's, that's, awesome. that's really fantastic yep well so you work in this uh, amazing facility, obviously, surrounded by America's treasures. What if you had to pick one artifact that would be your favorite <laughs> that, that you just kind of nerd out maybe a little bit longer than, than any of the others? What, what would it be? What's your favorite? Um, well, this goes back to a sort of personal story. It wouldn't normally ha- I would normally have said something completely different years ago, but... Um, Back in 2015, uh, well, 2014, and it opened in January 2015, I had the honor and privilege of getting to put together the museum's anniversary exhibit for the 50th anniversary of the first spacewalk. And, um, you know, it was about 100 artifacts and a bunch of artwork. You know, we have a really vast collection of materials to use for this. And um, so I worked with a great team of people to come up with something and, um, I, I said to our spacesuit curator, Kathy Lewis, I said, what is something I could use? Can I use Ed White's spacesuit? Uh, she said, it's just in really, it, it's not displayable um, as it is right now. We have a lot of work to do on it. And I said, okay, what's the next best thing we have? Um, I did get to put his, his gloves and his helmet on display, the umbilical cord, all this great stuff from this first spacewalk, his the first American spacewalk. Um, even got to put Alexei Leonov's military uniform on display, which was really amazing oh, wow. that we had as well. Um, but um, the most special thing I thought we got to do is we got to put on display Gene Cernan's Gemini 9 suit. And um, it is amazing to see in person. And so um, we got it out of storage, and we had it laying on 
a table and it was just so cool. It's got this great construction to it. You can really tell what kind of materials are, you know, were made, used in making this thing. Um, I'm really into the materials. I just, I love looking at um, the way things are constructed. And, and I, I, one of my favorite items, I sort of side story is the IMAX camera that we have from the shuttle missions. It's partly because you can see the machining of the metal. It's just really cool. Just like that spacesuit, I can see the construction. You can really look at it and see how it was handmade, really. And uh, so we, we came up with a way to display it. It was kind of tilted back. It looked, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was sort of standing upright and then just sort of til tilted backwards. And um, uh, we opened the exhibit, and one night we were doing a special lecture, and we were doing a special dinner that night, and our uh, guest of honor was Gene Cernan. Oh, wow. And so the director of the museum, who I um, – uh, he was he's he's a he's a really great person um came down gene he and gene cernan had been great friends and so the two of them were chatting and the exhibit was closed while they prepped for this dinner that we were having and and he came down and said uh you know they were chatting and he turned to me and he goes okay it's your turn and he i thought we were going to be doing a tour like the three of us and so i was going to be at a certain comfort level by having the director there where you know he and i have like a little banter we have about college football and stuff and i was like oh this will be easy no he just threw me over to gene cernan and i was like how does one do that now where i've got two i also we also had his boots from his apollo 17 mission in there too wow. So here we've got like yeah, the yeah. last boots on the moon Man. in this in this spacesuit that was you know he wore during his this really incredibly challenging spacewalk and I thought oh my god I've got to talk to him about his stuff like what if I messed up <laughs> what if I wrote the wrong words what if I did something crazy so we go over and he sees that suit and he just like is staring through the glass at it and I thought I'm never going to have this moment again. It was so cool because I got to be there by myself having that moment. So that then that suit then became my favorite artifact. It was just a no, it was a given that because of that sort of personal connection. Right. I have one other sort of one of those moments, and I don't want to give it away for anybody coming to Space Day because <laughs> uh -huh. that's my like big reveal. <laughs> um, but yeah, I have those those moments when you get to interact with the person who used the thing whatever that might be, is really pretty spectacular. It's like, it's like that thing connects them to that particular memory of that moment in their lives. It's really amazing. And those uh, moments are like crazy amazing that these people are out in space doing this stuff. Um, I, those are the times when I've really had the best experiences at the museum because it all comes together in that second. That is really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. And Gene, of course, was a great friend to EAA. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, and a you know, regular visitor and speaker at the gathering and things like that. No. I remember becoming completely flummoxed and tongue-tied the first time I met him uh, sitting at the breakfast at the Hilton during AirVenture. And this was actually when I was still at Microsoft and uh, sitting with a, a colleague of mine and then him saying, oh, hello, Gene, you know, how you doing? And, uh, and he said, Gene, do you know Hal? No, I don't think so. I'm Hal Bryant, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then Hal, this is Gene Cernan. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're the last man on the moon then. So uh, yeah. that's pretty cool. Do, do you want to sit down for breakfast or what? I just, yeah. I, I don't get starstruck yeah. easily, but boy, that was one, yeah. you know, that really, really threw me for a yeah. loop. I, I once, I will say, I won't name who it was, but I once drove an astronaut to his hotel in, in, a, in a car, and I realized only halfway down to, my, to the car that I had my sister's 
like uh, dodge dart that day and not my big dodge durango and this astronaut happened to be over six feet tall and i thought oh my god i'm gonna cram an astronaut into this little car see when you started that i thought you were gonna say i once drove an astronaut to drink no but I, think, <laughs> I don't think that's uh... I've, I've i think i've had drinks with astronauts but <laughs> not quite i mean who among us you know has not so we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, about different kinds of, of famous and of course now you're uh, you're a whole special kind of podcast famous so uh, so you're, you're welcome um, but uh, um, this is not my first podcast <laughs> but it's clearly her best <laughs> excuse me if you need me I'll be in my place where I've been put but uh, but Jennifer I've been sitting at home uh, flipping around the channels and like coming across the Smithsonian oh, Channel and I have seen you on television yes. and uh, and you seem to uh, like it or not you seem to have uh, sort of a, a an expertise in a particular facet of space flight no. you mentioned earlier. Yeah, my so, favorite. <laughs> so, so let's talk about how you became uh, came the expert and uh, and on, on space on, food. On, oh, sorry. <laughs> on, did you say space food? Yeah. No, that's, that wasn't what I was thinking. I was the thinking, other end of the front. Yes, I was thinking. Right. Uh, yeah, further the, down the line. Yes, yeah. further down the line. How did you How did you get to be the uh, the, the the televised expert on? Uh, going to the bathroom in space? Uh, well, just to back up to the other end of the process, I will say <laughs> I, I, I will apologize to anyone who uh, was spoiled by my other episode of being on. This was on a, a more of an interview, a video interview I did, but um, I think I spoiled the dreams of lots of young boys in particular who think astronaut ice cream from the gift shop is the best thing in the world. <laughs> I had lots of friends. I, I, I kind of dispelled the myth about the astronaut ice cream, and I had lots of Facebook friends just like rioting, basically, <laughs> saying, what did you do? But it, yeah, it's the other end of this whole process that uh, I, I sort of got the opportunity to do, which is funny because I was about, I think when I did the interview on that particular program, I think I was about uh, five or six months pregnant at the time, which made it really uncomfortable, let me say, to sit in a, in a chair and talk about fecal collection devices <laughs> or fecal collection units as I have abbreviated them recently and I learned that actually from an astronaut um, I was uh, walking along one day uh, escorting another astronaut and um, and his assistant said to me so what's your favorite artifact in the collection and I just kind of giggled for a second and then said well, it might not be all that. It's not really my favorite, but there are some that are really fun to talk about. And she looks at her at her boss and says, what do you think this curator means by, you know, <laughs> what's really fun to talk about? And he looks at me and says, FCUs. And I go, you got it. <laughs> um, it's probably the one dimension of space flight that I think every kid and every human is tr tries to understand because we all have to do it, you know, multiple times a day. It's how, or go to just going to the bathroom generally is, you know, we're all familiar with it, and uh, it's a, such a personal thing that we all do. And I think that part of it is the impersonal nature of doing it in space. You're in a very small space with other people. Um, what could be more embarrassing than have to, having to do that in front of other people, basically? Uh, so, and, and it's not made any more pleasant by the device, essentially. I mean, essentially, it's a plastic bag um, with a circular top that it has some adhesive on it. Uh, thankfully, they have toilets now, which are much less, and there are curtains and things to give some privacy, but um, I, the stories I've heard about the use of, of these in space during the Apollo program is nothing short of scary. I mean, um, 
I, I remember a number of years ago there coming there a, a story coming out. It was like it was headlines. It was like breaking news almost that on Apollo 10 there had been a poop disaster. <laughs> and I'm thinking this happened like 40 years ago. Why is this news? And it was really because somebody had just been reading through the mission transcripts because they were sometimes brutally honest during those mission transcripts <laughs> and during their flights. I mean, what are they, why wouldn't they say? So apparently something had escaped from the bag and it was floating around. You know, these are, in reality, it's all, you know, poop stories are funny. You know, my seven-year-old, my seven-year-old thinks it's hilarious. So does my four-year-old because that's just, you know, what they think is funny. But in reality, you know, these are, um, these are really, um, unwieldy looking things that astronauts have had to use and they're still the backup plan you know <laughs> and I often say I often say to people the simplest answer in space is often the best answer and what was the best answer for how to go to the bathroom in space a bag that you basically taped onto your butt I mean it's really how it goes <laughs> I mean it sounds crazy it's just but that's really what it's about um so I if often, I had a nickel obviously, for every time on this show, somebody talked about a bag yeah. taped to your butt. Yeah. We wouldn't be a nonprofit yeah, anymore. Yeah. I'll tell you that much. I know. Yeah. Uh, but it's, yeah, I mean, obviously there's a much more delicate way to say it to young children, but they often find that part really hilarious. So, it, it, But it's, I mean, to, you know, to be uh, fair, uh, talking about that is probably one of, it, it, we always say it is the most asked question in the museum. How do you go to the bathroom in space? And you have to have a... Uh, uh, kind of a sense of humor about it because it is a really like delicate topic to talk about. But at the same time, um, kids I think want to know those detailed things that are the simple basics mm -hmm. of life. How do you eat? How do you sleep? How do you mm -hmm. go to the bathroom? How do you know? How do you do those things that like kids? They're familiar with the basics, you know. They don't know about all the complexities of driving and you know <laughs> having to do a job and all that stuff. They don't get that part, but the simple things are easy to explain, and, and not to scare any of them off, but, um, yeah, I would say that might be one of the things that would scare me off from being an astronaut. <laughs> I have to do what? Yeah, I know. I know. I, I think there were some, especially initially, I think there were stories of some of them trying to find ways to avoid it entirely, um, and then it just didn't go so well, and they, you know, it's, it's true, so... And it's a bunch wow. of guys in a small little VW bug shape, you know, sized <laughs> thing. I just can't even imagine the. You really had to like each other to some, at some <laughs> level to be able to do that um, and not not really lose your temper, or, you know. Just, wow. Well, I'm really glad you asked that question. Yeah. Now. <laughs> I. What yeah. choice did I have? Yeah. I mean, really. It's, it's, no. uh, but when I did that program, it was it was just so super awkward because I was describing it, and I'm sitting here thinking in my head, oh, my God, here I am, pregnant on television, on a reputable channel. You know, it's not like I was on, um, you know, entertainment television or some, you TMZ. know, like TMZ. I'm not, yeah, I'm not, yeah, that's not what I do. I'm a professional here, and I have to tell it in a professional way. I just remember, I think I must have done six or seven takes on that because I just couldn't find the right way to say it. And I, over the years, I've had to refine my language about it, too. I don't say poop in the museum. We talk about bowel movements and fecal collection and all that. It's, it's just, it's, yeah. It's wacky. But I'm the one that gets to talk about it, which makes it really fun. That makes my job fun. I'm the one that talks about it. I do not curate, I will say, I do not curate the three space toilets that we have. So I have to kind of, 
You is know, there a, is there a, a space toilet curator? <laughs> well, not or, specific. That would okay. be a really simple job. Are you hiring? Or <laughs> you'd have very little to do. Um, no, we do. Well, we have we have some from uh, some from the uh, Russians, and we have a space shuttle toilet. We have some. I, I mean, almost every place that talks about the space shuttle ends up with a mock-up space toilet because they know that's what kids want to know right. about. That's so you end up with about. the mock-up, and it's. Um, we have one that we wheel out of our um, mock-up mid-deck, and, and it's the most popular thing in the room when it's out. <laughs> I yep. can only imagine. Yeah. Well, I can't think of a better way to, uh, <laughs> to wrap up this episode. I also, uh, I also I don't know how we top uh, a, a topic like that. I, I, think, uh, I think that uh, that brings us careening to the end. So, uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to be here. It's been so good to, to talk with you again. And, Happy to do it. And we're so lucky to have you here. And uh, as we're recording this, it's uh, it's right before Space Day. But by the time this airs, uh, then uh, Space Day will have uh, will have happened. And I'm sure it was a rousing success. And you got a standing ovation after your talk. <laughs> I have no doubt of this whatsoever. So uh, big thanks uh, to also to Sarah for sitting in and playing uh, playing guest host. Uh, Sarah, after you joining us today, I just look across the table and I say, "Tom, who? Yeah, never, I don't, never heard of him. May not be invited back. Yeah, we'll see. He's on he's on uh, probation <laughs> yep. at this point. Uh, and uh, always, always, uh, so much gratitude goes out to everybody who listens and gives us feedback and uh, reviews on iTunes and things like that. Uh, comments on the blog posts. Uh, please keep that coming. And, uh, you know, wherever you listen to us, if you're in the car, in the hangar, working on your airplane, or you're sitting on the FCU, I do hope uh, that uh, that you'll keep the feedback coming, stay listening, tell your friends, keep subscribing, all that good stuff. And so with that, uh, we'll talk to you again the next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. <laughs>